morning, church family. I'm looking forward to, to preaching God's word to his people through the power of his spirit this morning. Um, can you please turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 18? We're back in Acts this Sunday. We're going to look at verses 7 through 17 today because it's all, it's all part of one narrative in the city of Corinth. And so it, it kind of hangs together. But I feel like the main thing that I'm led to preach on is in the first few verses, so while the kids are finding all the, the bingo pictures in this uh, slide that's coming up here, um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through all the verses and kind of try to see the big picture of God's sovereignty uh, in, in his plan, how it worked together throughout, throughout this, this process, this passage here. And then uh, we're going to come back, we're going to revisit the first paragraph because I think it contains a whole lot of application for us today and every day, honestly. So just to remind us what all has been happening, Paul is on his second missionary journey with Timothy, with Dr. Luke, um, who wrote the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts, and also another Jewish prophet named Silas. And after preaching through several cities at the end of chapter 16, Paul had been whisked away, you remember this from Berea, to protect him. Because there were some violent Jewish men that considered him a heretic and they wanted, he was blaspheming as far as they were concerned. They wanted to kill him. So he was in Athens by himself for a time before going to Corinth. And that's where his compadres finally caught up to him. And so uh, in Corinth, Paul started out as usual by going into the synagogues on the Sabbath. And, and he was preaching to his fellow Jews about the Messiah that they've been awaiting, being Jesus Christ. And he'd been doing this on a pretty regular basis. Uh, but, but the majority of them finally... Just They just refuse to listen. They're like, we're done with you. And so he's like, cool, I'm done with you. So it says Paul, he, he shook out his garments. You know, he said, I'm, I'm done. And, uh, and he said, I'm going to go preach to the Gentiles now. He told them his conscience was clean. He told them their blood was on their own head. And honestly, saying that he was going to go to the, the Gentiles probably made some of his detractors happy, you know, because they were glad to get rid of him. Um, others were probably shocked. Because they just couldn't figure out why anybody would go preach to Gentiles. Because they're not God's people. But that's where we left off a couple of weeks ago uh, in verse 6. Why don't we pray and we'll get into verse 7. Father God, we ask in Jesus' name that you open our hearts and minds this morning. We pray for faithfulness, Lord, in receiving the word and also for what we do with it. Father, I thank you for the people that are here this morning and uh, for those that didn't make it here this morning. I pray for those who are sick. I pray for those who are traveling. We ask, Father, that you will help us uh, this afternoon to, uh, as we go home and some, some nap and some go to anthology and, and, uh, and minister there and some go spend time with family, whatever the case may be, help us to honor you. I pray, God, that we, we glorify you with our lives and that it's not just on Sunday morning that you're at the forefront of our thoughts, Lord. Please be constantly with us in our mind's eye so that we can uh, see where you're leading. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so th this is right after Paul said, I'm going to the Gentiles. And he left there, that was the synagogue, and went to the house of a man named Titius Justice, who is a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Uh, Paul didn't go very far, did he? I like that. Um, 
And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Now, again, we're going to be coming back to this, and so I, so I just want to set that aside for now. But before we go on, I want to remind everybody about Corinth first. This was a city that was known for being an extremely sinful place. This, this was the sin city. For the, sort of like Las Vegas, we would think of that now probably as, as you know, it's, it has the nickname Sin City. This was like Vegas to that extent. There are a lot of things there that happened that weren't necessarily commonplace everywhere else. And of course, like Vegas, what happens in Corinth doesn't actually stay in Corinth because everyone knew the reputation of the place as terribly depraved, filled with sexual immorality and drunkenness and every kind of, of wicked, illicit pleasure. In fact, Corinth was such a morally corrupt place that the name of the city was used as a slang term for a woman becoming a prostitute. The, the English equivalent would be to Corinthianize. So that's, that's the kind of town that Paul is in here. And we'll talk about why that's important later. But anyway, let, let's forge ahead. Uh, we'll come back to this. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. I want you to pause there for a second, because that's an interesting statement to me. Paul has only just begun preaching, right, to, to these Gentiles in Corinth. But God tells him that he has many in this city who are his people. Now, what does that mean? Yeah, I, I'm going to tell you, I don't know for sure. But when they, you know, when reading commentaries, uh, you know, looking up about this passage, the consensus seems to be that God is referring to his elect who have not yet come to faith through hearing the gospel. I think that's pretty awesome. Because it's a reminder that God not only knows the end from the beginning, but he orchestrates it to lay claim to individuals. I think that's pretty awesome. Anyway, um, we're going to keep going. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Don't you think Paul had a little bit of relief after he got that vision from God? I mean, after all the stuff he'd been through, this is really hot. Can you turn down the mic just a little bit? Or actually, I'll, I'll move it down. I'll move it down. Um, he's been through a whole lot of stuff, and I'll bet he was encouraged to finally get a break from persecution, you know, for a little while. He's been going through an awful lot of stuff. You remember in 2 Corinthians when Paul is kind of recounting some of the terrible things he's gone through for the sake of Christ and for the gospel? I mean, it, it is nerve-wracking just reading that stuff that he's been through, let alone going through it. We're going to talk about some of that in a little bit, but, but I'll, bet, I'll bet it was encouraging to know that he was going to be able to evangelize without being beaten half to death or thrown in jail. You know, surprisingly, this is in one of the most heathen cities of the ancient world, too. And for the next year and a half, Paul is able to, to rest in God's sovereign protection. And that opened the door to some real discipleship among the people there in Corinth. In fact, uh, the following part of the story, which seems to be a little odd, given the context, it shows just how strong God's protection is. Um, let's start reading in verse 12. There's a, there's a, a whine in the mic. There's, it keeps on... If we could fix that. Um, 
we're going to start reading in verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. By the way, has anybody ever heard of Seneca, the Greek philosopher? No? Okay, that's fine. Um, Seneca was actually Gallio's, his brother, although Gallio changed his name to go with his adoptive father. And this, this dude was really well-loved by the people. In fact, he had the nickname Dulce Gallio, which means uh, sweet Gallio, because he had such a, a friendly and a kind disposition. We don't really get that from the story, though. Uh, that's just from, from historical stuff. Anyway, while he was the proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. Now, if you're paying attention, you might wonder how this fits into what God said to Paul in the vision, right? Because he told Paul, he said, nobody's going to attack you to harm you. But they certainly seem united in attacking him, right? And united in trying to harm him. Ah, but it appears that God is referring to the results, not the intent of the attack. And we're going to see that in just a jiffy here. But um, by the way, their accusation against Paul is true. Okay? He was trying to, uh, he, was, he was teaching faith in Christ. And so much of the law of Moses, you know, the ceremonial, the, the sacrificial, the dietary law, all of that has been superseded by faith in Christ. You see that in the book of Hebrews very plainly. But they didn't accept that, right? And so this time, rather than using vigilante justice like they had been in the past, they tried to go the legal route through the government, which was something they probably regretted. Um, since Luke writes, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, listen, he didn't even have to defend himself, y'all. When Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, ah, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O oh Jews... I would have a reason to accept your complaint, but since it's a matter of questions about words and, and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. Well, that was certainly not what they were expecting. You know, it's sad that knowing, knowing the Lord was not important enough to Gallio that he would concern himself with hearing the truth, but it does go to show that God's sovereign protection on Paul was totally legitimate. <laughs> even, even had they received Gallio's permission to punish Paul, they didn't have God's permission. You know, verse 16 says, And he drove them from the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio paid no attention to this. <laughs> Sweet Gallio, indeed. <laughs> this is such a bizarre story to me. I mean, without any more context, we don't really know what happened. Was Paul under some kind of like a security detail? Because that happens in Acts a couple of times. Uh, or, you know, did the mob mentality just turn inward? Why did they beat Sosthenes when they were mad at Paul? I'd say that's due to God's promise to Paul in the vision. But whatever the case, in all this, this ruckus, Paul apparently escaped totally unscathed. And I, I find that very interesting and also notable that Sosthenes was the ruler of the synagogue at this point, and we're going to come back to that later. I keep saying that, but we will. All in all, though, this, this odd story is a reminder that God is in charge of what happens in our lives. Listen, nobody can harm you without God's permission. Nobody can do anything to you apart from God's permission. I want to say that so that we all understand this. He only gives His permission for us to be harmed 
if it is something that will bring about good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. That's what Romans 8 promises us. Romans 8, 28. He will only allow us to be harmed in the sense that we think of harm in a way that will be good and furthers his purpose. So when something happens that we don't like, that hurts, let's remember there's a purpose behind this. And if you love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, this too will work out for the good. It's always a worthy thing for us to remind ourselves of. God is faithful. He does what he promises he will do. And that's a, that's a huge motif. Going to come back around later. But with that in mind, let's return to verse 7. Let's see what today's text says to us about the fruit of sacrifice. Because there's actually quite a bit of sacrifice that gets alluded to in, in this passage. And our first character to look at is the Apostle Paul himself. Okay, Anyone who has studied the Apostle Paul should probably know, if you've ever even just read the New Testament, you ought to know that Paul experienced a highly unusual amount of persecution because he was chosen and called by God to suffer greatly on behalf of Jesus. God even said that to uh, the, the Ananias, you remember, that went to go lay hands on Saul and, and to pray over him and, and then to baptize him. You remember this? He says, I'll show him how much he's going to have to suffer for me. That's what God said about Saul at the time. And he also received, this is Paul I'm talking about, received specific instruction. He received actual visions and assurances from Christ to give him the strength to deal with all this stuff that he had to go through. But nonetheless, he endured terrible stresses for the Lord. And we're going to take a minute and just talk about what sacrifices he made since his ministry began. Obviously, rejection. That's a big one. You know, we're all afraid of rejection, right? We all hate the idea of being rejected. Paul dealt with that a lot. It was a major part of his life. He had to sacrifice the acceptance and the love of the majority of his fellow Jews for the sake of Christ. And later we see even many of his own church plants kind of turned against him at times. Church at Corinth was really bad about that. Apparently Galatia was too. And as recently as verse 6 of this chapter, we see Paul reacting to being rejected yet again by his own countrymen. You know, we've all learned the, the mantra, at least most of us probably remember, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Is that true? No. <laughs> words can hurt. You know, sometimes we feel the pain of emotional wounds way after we feel the pain of physical wounds. Rejection hurts. Psychological scars can occur from careless words. I'm sure Paul received plenty of those, but he also had no shortage of physical scars. And we'll get to where they came from in a little bit here, but, but it's important to note that Paul had been through way more than just verbal abuse. You know, he, he was so unwilling to, to compromise on the preaching of the gospel that there were times where he was physically abused to the point of near death, perhaps even death at one point. And one thing I, I really love about Paul, he's, he's got a lot of chutzpah. You know, he's, he's, uh, he, he correctly viewed the scars on his body as, as something to be proud of 
because, not in a, in a negative way, but it showed his authenticity as an apostle of Jesus Christ. In fact, in one letter, as a way of kind of pushing back against criticism and asserting some of his, you know, his street cred, Paul, Paul says, let no man bother me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. He's talking about literal scar tissue, folks. And, you know, at the risk of a quick rabbit trail, I, 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 want, I want to say, I think one of the best ways to see if a person is truly being faithful to God is if they bear any wounds, physical or otherwise, because of their allegiance to Christ. You know, a lot of people today want to claim to be apostle so-and-so. If you ever watch the Big Hair Network or one of those, you'll see that there are people who call themselves apostle, whatever. You know what? I'll bet if they lift up their shirts, they're not going to have a back that's been torn to ribbons and covered with, with scar tissue. Because that's what a real apostle looks like. I'm, I'm going to say not many of them can do that. Titles can easily be bestowed on someone by themselves. But the marks of a life lived for Christ is a, it's a far greater testament to a person's spiritual authority. Incidentally, it, it wasn't a one-time thing. You know, Paul was constantly in the thick of the battle for the gospel. He had lifelong struggles for the sake of Jesus and his message. In fact, I alluded to it earlier, but there's this place in 2 Corinthians where Paul shares a list of some of the stuff he's been through because he's being compared to, uh, to the church by, by the church, excuse me, he's being compared by, especially in this place, the church in Corinth, to some people, Paul kind of sarcastically calls them super apostles, but they were people who claimed to be apostles and they hadn't suffered for the faith at all. And so Paul writes, are they servants of Christ? He says, I'm a better one. And he goes, I'm talking like a madman here. But with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Five times, y'all. A brutal beating. Three times I was beaten with rods. That's basically being caned. Once I was stoned, like with rocks. Okay, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I spent adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. It's like that song, you know, danger in the morning. Danger in the evening. You know, danger, he says, at sea from false brothers, in toil and hardship, often without food, cold, exposure. He says, and on top of all this, I, I bear the daily concern for all the churches. This guy goes through a lot, and it's constant. He went through an almost unbelievable, inhuman amount of stress and suffering of just about every kind for the sake of Christ. And I would think, you know, I wouldn't be too surprised anyway if it made him, him bitter or at least resentful. But that, that's not what we see. He's not even jaded here. You know, we, we see in almost every letter he writes, he's just overflowing with joy. It just radiates. How is that even possible? How can he have joy in the midst of all these awful, awful circumstances? Because despite everything that he'd been through, Paul knew it was totally worth it.
as any true Christian should grasp this, Paul understood that life is only temporary here. And our obedience here produces great rewards in heaven. And we know he felt that way because he said so. In fact, it was, it was in his letter to the Philippians, which he wrote from prison, no less, that Paul seems to show the most joy. And he tells us why. Because after receiving uh, all these, these things that, um, that were, were considered blessings, you know, and it, Dave read some of them earlier, you know, being a, a Jew of Jews, a Benjaminite, circumcised on the eighth day, all these things. All these, these, these reasons he could have relied on for his self-esteem, he said, but whatever gain I have, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value, the greatness, the worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. All, all those worldly pedigrees, all those accolades that he received, the, the laurels he could have polished, that stuff was useless. In the long run, he continues, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That is the Greek word skubala, and rubbish is way too polite a translation. It means dung. Okay? He counts all these earthly benefits as dung. In order, he says, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. That's the key, church. You know, while we, while we, we don't, in fact, we, we can't earn our salvation, we can receive it as a free gift from God. However, what we do here with what we have is going to have an effect on what we receive in heaven. And so Paul, he isn't concerned with the stuff happening to him now because eventually it's going to end. It's just temporary. And then he'll be able to eternally live in the heavenly blessings of Christ. I think most of us can probably rightly say that we're not called to the same level of suffering in our lives as Paul, but that doesn't mean we don't have sacrifices to make. I want us to look again at verse 7. After being rejected, Paul left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. I, I love that. You know, Titius Justus... It, it, he's, he's right next door to the synagogue. Well, we'll get there. Anyway, so that's a Roman name. This guy's a Gentile, okay? He's not a Jew. He's, he's a Gentile, but he's also a worshiper of God. And apparently he's become a Christian. Because when he says a worshiper of God, and the fact that he's putting Paul up in his home, you know, to me that says that he was a Christian, right? And since Paul wasn't allowed in the synagogue anymore, he basically said, fine. He walked out the door, and he turned, and he walked a few steps, and he turned again, and that was his new evangelism headquarters, because it was right next door. And the way the text reads here, it, it, it doesn't seem to mean that Paul actually moved out of Priscilla and Aquila's house. You remember, he was living with them. They're all tent makers. But rather, he began to use Titius Justus' place as, as a meeting place for all these people that have been receptive to his message at the synagogue. And I want us to talk about, just for a minute, the sacrifice of Titius Justice. Now, obviously, once again, if he was a true worshiper of God, he'd already been converted to Christianity by the Holy Spirit. He was already on the outs, so to speak, with the Jews at the synagogue. And so I, I think that rejection 
probably already something he had to deal with too. I think that's any time that you choose faith in Christ or come to faith in Christ, I think you're going to have to deal with rejection. But if you think about it, a further casualty of his location would have been his privacy at home. It may not sound like a big deal, but it kind of is. I mean, I don't know everybody in this room, but I know some folks really do have a natural instinct to think my home is my castle, right? Like there's something sacrosanct to them about it. There's privacy. There's convenience. That's where you go to recuperate. You know, and, and that's all stuff we can't always get in another setting. But listen, guys, whenever we open our homes to other people, and especially to people to, with whom we don't have a, a, a personal relationship with yet, that's stressful, right? That's stressful. It can be a stressor even sharing your home with, with your family over the holidays with people that you know and love simply because you're letting them into what you feel like is your own private space. But guys, hospitality is a big part of living the life of Christ in our own context. Welcoming others. Something we're called to do, even if we're not really comfortable with it. So by giving Paul free reign to use his house as a home base, Titius Justice probably just opened the floodgates with having visitors in and out. I mean, his house would have been Grand Central Station at least once a week, probably several times a week for hours at a time. It's just something to think about. And yet, we, we don't know much about this, this Gentile worshiper of God. I bet he thought it was totally worth it. I mean, th think about it. As, as tiring and as stressful as it can be to host a crowd, Titius would have been watching and listening to people being discipled in the Lord. He would have been watching people coming to Christ. He, he would have been present to hear the teaching of the Apostle Paul himself. And if he were, you know, aware of heavenly rewards, he would have known he was storing up treasure for himself in heaven by allowing himself to be seriously inconvenienced in this life. I mean, after all, Christ says if anybody even gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones in his name, he says he'll receive a prophet's award. So I would think opening up one's home in the name of Jesus sounds like a level up, you know? Does that make sense? So, so let's be sure to recognize the sacrifice that was being made here. And yet, any sacrifice made for the Lord is worth it in the long run because nothing goes unnoticed by God. And especially nothing good. Let's look at this next verse. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. That, that, that's a name we need to bring back, don't you think? Crispus. Some of you guys, when you have your grandkids, talk to the parents, just throw that out there. Crispus, he would be the fourth Rice Krispie elf, most likely. Um, anyway, he believed in the Lord together with his entire household. That is awesome. <laughs> his entire family came to faith in Jesus Christ. And what joy that must have brought, you know? But, but I'll bet, I'll bet there was some fallout. So let's talk about the sacrifice of Crispus, okay? Incidentally, in 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions that he didn't remember baptizing anyone in Corinth other than this guy, Crispus, another dude named, named Gaius. 
and then uh, the household of Stephanus. That doesn't mean that no one else was baptized, by the way. It's simply that Paul had other people doing the baptizing for him. But it's possible that he may remember him simply because Crispus was kind of a big fish, so to speak. I mean, it says he was the ruler of the synagogue. <laughs> was. Because remember, a few verses later, there's a different guy named Sosthenes, who was a ruler of the synagogue. And at that moment, Christmas was probably glad it wasn't him. <laughs> but there, there's no contradiction here, okay? I, I think Christmas was probably the ruler of the synagogue until he converted over to the way, which was what Christianity was called at the time. You know, that, that would have gone over like a lead balloon to a bunch of Jewish traditionalists. They don't want their synagogue ruler to be a heretic in their minds, right? So Crispus would have experienced a loss of social status and his role in the community. He went from being a highly respected religious leader to an outcast that some would probably flat out accuse of heresy and blasphemy, right? Now, folks, I must say until the last decade or so, I, I think we've lived in a culture that respected Christianity. And even though we have lost a lot of that respect, we still don't know what it's like to live in a society that is hostile to Jesus. Yet. I think rejection for Crispus should have been far more concerning than it would have been for a traveling missionary like Paul because he had so much more to lose. I mean, he had roots in the neighborhood. Friends and family that, that, that might have turned their backs on him. He had the loss of a prestigious position in the synagogue. But guess what? It was totally worth it. Because Crispus, he recognized he'd gone from, from being a caretaker in a synagogue, in a building, to part of the temple of the Holy Spirit. He himself was now a building that God was living in. And his people were no longer determined by biology and by ritual, but they were determined by a unified spirit and by the blood of Jesus Christ. He was no longer a son of Israel. Now he was a child of God. It's powerful. And I think it's safe to say that Christmas probably didn't have a, you know, an easy road to hoe after this. I, I think it was probably pretty difficult, but I bet he wasn't too worried about it because he knew his eternal destiny had changed. And this, this comfort, this assurance... This joy, it wasn't based on any kind of social currency that, the, that he's going to experience in this life, but it was entirely on the promise of God in whom he believed. That was where his comfort was. That's where his assurance was. That's where his joy was. And all of this was due to the one who made a greater sacrifice. And here I'm not talking about the Apostle Paul. I'm talking about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Any time that you hear, whether it's online or whether it's in the building, any time you hear a sermon from this pulpit, I hope you'll expect to hear the gospel message. And yet, uh, I think sometimes hearing the basics so often can have a tendency to, uh, to dampen our enthusiasm about it, because, you know, which we ought to avoid that at all costs. It's like, you know, like taking communion every week, you know, we, that should never get old to us, right? Hearing the gospel should always 
always rekindle a fresh love in our hearts for, for what God did for us through sending His Son, Jesus. It should always affect our hearts and minds. And since we're talking about sacrifice, it seems like maybe we ought to discuss, you know, the most important sacrifice ever. I'd like to use Paul's words once again. This is from the, the book of Philippians. This, this is the Carmen Christi, the, the song of Christ from chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Through Paul, the Holy Spirit tells the church at Philippi, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Literally, that Greek word means clung to because it was already his but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know, what, what an amazing thing to consider that, that God, who was glorified in heaven, seated on his throne in perfect communion, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that He would choose to pour Himself out in this way. You know, the, the, the second person of the triune God went from, from total exaltation to humiliation. It says He was obedient in every way to the Father's will, including going to the cross. His perfect life made him an acceptable sacrifice to take the place of sinners like you and like me. Receiving in himself the penalty for our sins. You know, his, his precious blood is the ink by which the Lord wrote his letter of forgiveness to us. It is finished. But the story, it, it, it doesn't because it must not end there, right? Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Bless you. He raised him up both from the dead and into heaven and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Why don't you say it with me? In heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friends, the sacrifice of Christ was that he gave up everything. All the, the comforts, the benefits, and the glories of his heavenly home. All of the honor befitting his holy name. He did that to become a zygote, and then a human infant, and then a boy, and then a man. All the time, bearing the fullness of the deity within himself, yet never calling on it apart from the Father's will. He gave up all that. He gave up all that. Why? Scripture tells us why. The author of Hebrews instructs us to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and was seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We, we used that passage last week for a different point. I don't know if you remember that. But isn't the depth of Scripture amazing? <laughs> you, could, you could preach so many messages out of just this one passage. But anyway, why did Jesus, that's the answer. Why did Jesus empty himself out? Why would he give up everything? It's for the joy set before him. 
Now, what does that mean? What's the joy? Well, surely part of it's glorifying the Father. Surely part of it is living in perfect submission to the Father's will. You know, we see hints of that in the Gospel of John and elsewhere, but, but there's another hint, once again, in Hebrews, I think provides insight into what a really big part of the joy set before him actually it was. <clears throat> Hebrews 2.10 says, It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now that's talking about God the Father and how he perfected Jesus through suffering. That's a whole sermon in itself. But what was he actually doing with all this? It says right there, he was bringing many sons to glory. That's us. That's us. He gave up everything for the joy that was set before him, and that includes us. We are the many sons whom God was, was bringing to himself and bringing to glory through Jesus. There's an old saying that goes, when he was on the cross, we were on his mind. And I think that's true. You know, Jesus was certainly feeling the stress of the moment from the Garden of Gethsemane onward, but once, once the Father had assured him there was no other way, he never looked back. He went through all the horrors of a savage flogging and of the mocking and the brutalizing and the piercings of thorns and of nails and of the humiliation of being displayed naked and bloody before a crowd of sinners who didn't understand it was all for them. All for us. And yet to Jesus, it was totally worth it. Do you understand that? Do you realize that it was totally worth it to Jesus? The crucifixion was not plan B. It was the plan from the foundation of the world. It says in Scripture that the spotless lamb would be slain in order to save us from the power and the penalty of our sins against God. It was plan A. That means knowing the end from the beginning that God said we were worth this. Christ declares we are worth it to Him. That's how much He loves us. And the resurrection is proof positive that He succeeded in His sacred mission to die to make us holy. By the way, it's been said and it's very true. Jesus didn't die to make us happy. He died to make us holy. I want you to I want you to let that wash over you. You know, let let the power of, of God's grace and his mercy convict you. After all that Jesus went through, you know, for you and for me, let's, let's love him for it. Let's love him for it because when, when we recognize how much he sacrificed for us, it makes us not want to hold anything back. And when Christians stop holding back, we're going to start to see some real fruit, church.
as the end of verse 8 says, many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. This is, this is one of those things when you, when you read this, we don't really realize how amazing this is. But this is one of those kind of, if they can come to Christ, anybody ought to be able to come to Christ. Because these guys were, were the, the pagan of the pagans. But they were hearing and they were believing and they were being baptized. See, this is the fruit. This is the results of sacrifices that are made by these faithful people. You know, when, when th this long-suffering perseverance of Paul and the hospitality of, of Titius Justus and the example of, of Crispus and, of course, the blood of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ, this is what was produced from that many people were saved for eternity. You think about that. These Corinthians known for being the most evil and immoral people, believed and were baptized. These pagans accepted the truth and they were rescued from the path to hell unto eternal life. And I'll bet you, for Paul and Titius Justus, Crispus and Jesus himself, everything that they went through to produce this fruit was totally worth it. And then friends, it's totally worth it for us too to sacrifice whatever is necessary for the Lord's will to be done in us. And I don't, I don't know what the Lord's will is, you know, specifically calling for you. Like, I, I don't know. I have trouble sometimes discerning what it is for me. But I know that there is a will for each of us. God has a plan for each of us specifically. And that's between us and the Holy Spirit. But any sacrifice, any sacrifice, up to and including our lives, that we make on behalf of Christ is totally worth it. Because of the fruit that it, that it produces from our temporary loss lasts for eternity. In our own lives and in the lives of others. And so friends... Please ask yourself the old, old question. If Jesus died for me, will I live for him? Will you? No, that's our, that's our invitation. Christ doesn't call us to anything less. He doesn't just call us to say some words or to Make a decision. Every day we ought to be making decisions for Christ. Every day. It's a lifestyle. It's something that we're called to walk in. It does begin with putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Professing that faith publicly to a body of believers and being baptized. By immersion. As a believer. That's how it begins. That's, that's the starting line. And then it involves walking faithfully with Christ. And that's really, really hard to do by yourself. Some would say impossible. We need a body of believers around us to walk with us. We need to be doing this journey together. So if you this morning think, you know what, I, I really do need to be baptized. I really do need to confess my faith. I really do need to join this church because I'm already a baptized believer, but I'm not walking faithfully with Christ. If you need anything, even just to, to say, I need prayer, I need help, I'm struggling with whatever, this is your time. 